what a wonderful time of worship. We do want to say thank you to our volunteers and our, our, our worship team. Uh, what a powerful time that we get to gather together, even though like this. But the good news is, on Father's Day, we are regathering. Now, some of you were saying, you know, I tried to log on and, and register, but it says, uh, through the app that we're using, it says sold out because it's kind of like a ticket app that we're using. But it's, of course, no cost. And that's just for attendance purpose so that uh, we know how many people will be coming and how we can serve you best. And it is true that it, uh, all the seats are taken. So what we're doing is uh, you'll be able to register for the following week after Father's Day. So jump on as quick as possible uh, following uh, Sunday, uh, this coming Sunday, which is Father's Day, and uh, sign in so that you can register. And on the uh, in the chat, you're going to see a link that pops up that will lead you towards probably our website so that you can have the full instruction on what it looks like for you to register you. And if a loved one is coming with you, then that would be great too. But we're, we're so thankful that we're at a place where we can regather again and in a safe way as well as a way that we can serve you well. So there are still some protocols. And as the weeks go by, we'll keep you updated on what's been happening, which is pretty interesting because I have some of my friends asking me, like, I didn't know we were regathering. I'm like, are you watching on Sundays or Wednesdays? Oh, well, you know, I don't know, I'm watching. So, so we, we're always talking about what's happening uh, and we're always posting online or through social media. And so we get to regather on Father's Day. And the only reason we can do that is because God is faithful. For those of you who have been giving and those of you who have been praying, isn't it true that God has been faithful? We can look at God's track record and there is nowhere in time in our lives that we could see that God was not faithful. He is always faithful. As we pray over our tithes and offerings, we give to a faithful God. We give because we love our faithful God and we trust in him. These are the ways that you can give. You can do it online or through our app. Uh, you can even mail it in, 840 Kupulau Road here in Hilo, Hawaii. Or you can text uh, NHC Give to that number or 4483, which is 188-364-4483. And that will uh, get you to a place where you can give through text. And we're just looking at ways that we can help you give out of love to the God that you serve. So let's pray over our tithes and offerings. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this opportunity to continue our act of worship and giving back to you what you already own. And so as we give to you, we pray over the finances so that you can use it the way you see fit so that people can come to know you as Lord and Savior. We pray your blessing over these that are giving. And even for those who are looking for work, Lord, we pray that you'd provide for them, help them and direct them to where they need to go and give them favor as they go through job interviews and things like that. We trust in you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. And we all said, amen. Well, Pastor Marsha Krieger is continuing in our series, and she's going to be talking about the way we think and to think about these things. So Pastor Marsha, bring the word tonight. All right. Well, thank you, Pastor Sheldon, and welcome to all of you who are joining us online. You know, I'm actually, I've been home for about a week or two. Um, my husband and I went to Denver, um, and it was a lot of fun. But as you know, if you travel to the mainland, when you come home, you have to get the test, and you have to load it up in the safe travels. 
And we knew we had to do that. So what we did is before we left, we called our medical provider, and they were um, on the list of um, accepted test people, and we made arrangements to do our test in Denver before we traveled home. When we were talking to them on the phone, here's what they said. They said, we need to give you a number for you, you to use in Denver. And then they said, well, what's your number in Hawaii? So I assumed, which I'm going to tell you right now, never assume anything. Don't assume. I assumed that they would be able to send the message to my Hilo account, and I would see the message. So the day came, we took our test, um, and we said, okay, how many days? And they said, well, within 24 to 48 hours, if, it got, if you have COVID, they're going to call you. I said, okay. 24 hours later, open our app, look, no test result. I said, okay, it's okay. This is Denver, it's a big city, we'll get it in 48 hours. They didn't call me, so I don't have COVID. Then 48 hours, guess what? No test result. Like, okay, this is not good, what's going on? We're leaving tomorrow, and we don't have our test results. So my husband calls, and they said, oh, I don't know why you don't have the test results. I can see it right here. But because of HIPAA laws, they couldn't tell him over the phone what our test results was, and it wouldn't have helped anyways because we need to load it to safe travels. So we figured, okay, it'll probably be in that night. Well, we woke up the next morning, still no test results, and we're on our way to the airport. So at the airport, I can hear Tom talking to the person on the phone, and, you know, they're saying that they have our test results. He's saying, we don't see them. We're looking. And I don't remember what he said. And all of a sudden, I went, oh, we need to set up an account with our Denver numbers. Well, I tried to do that, and we had trouble. And then they called our, our flight to board. So I said, okay, we're going to have to do this in Portland. So we're flying. Can't do anything. Enjoy the flight. Get to Portland. We have a three-hour layover. He's on the phone, I'm on the phone, because when we landed in Portland, this is what they told us. Do you have your safe travels? You're going to Hawaii. We said, we're trying to get them from our um, insurance provider. Okay, if you don't have it, you're not boarding. And we're like, we're working on it. We're going to get it. So Tom's talking to them. I'm talking to them. I'm saying, I'm trying to load it. They're not letting us load what's going on. Finally, after two very, very, very patient, loving, and kind representatives, we were able to get our test results. Like within an hour of boarding the flight, we got our test results. And I remember sitting there looking at my husband, and I said, man, they don't play together well, do they? Like there's no communication in this whole big thing. They didn't communicate. And then I thought, that's just like us. See, there's either no communication or there's miscommunication in our heads and our hearts. Such as we hear things, we read things in the Bible, we hear things in a message, and we say, man, that is so good, I gotta apply that. And then when we get out and live our life, nothing happens. There's a glitch between what we know and what we do. Between my head and my heart, between my will and my spirit, there's often a breakdown in communication. I can read my Bible. I can attend church. I can hear a message that strikes home, and I can even post it on social media and say, man, you got to hear this. It just stuck me to the heart. I can even say, whoa, that was one good message. But that's as far as it goes. I remain unchanged, and I continue living the same way that I've been living 
treating people the same way that I've been treating them and saying the same things and making the same decisions that I've always made. And despite what I've read in the Bible and how I feel about what I read, life goes on as usual. But it doesn't have to be like that. We can have a very whole and integrous faith that connects both our heart and our head, our will and our spirit. Because real life change doesn't happen when I know something. It happens in what we do. For instance, I know what my favorite song is supposed to sound like. I can hear it in my head. But I guarantee you, if you ask my grandkids what I know here and what comes out here, not the same. Totally disconnected. And Jesus' younger brother, James, he challenged the believers who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire about this type of miscommunication in their hearts. And he said this, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Now, I don't know anyone who looks in a mirror, notices something that needs to be adjusted, and then doesn't do it. If I'm out eating, and I feel something in my teeth, and I pull up a mirror, and I look, and I see a piece of food, I'm not leaving it there for the next person to see or for them to notice. In the very same way, each time we open our Bible, it's an opportunity to look at ourselves, to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying, and to make adjustments. And every time we close our Bible and step out into the world, we get to make a choice about what we are going to do with what we read. Will we look in the mirror and make adjustments, or will we just walk away? Will we apply what we read and allow the word of God to shape and mold us into the men and women that he wants us to be? Men and women who represent the kingdom of God in this world? Or will we continue our life as is, all the while believing that because I read my Bible, I'm a good Christian? I can say things like, you know, I'm not like them. Look what they're doing. At least I read my Bible. I know I'm doing okay. Will we respond to what we see, to what we read, to what we hear, or will we ignore it? In the book of Genesis, chapter 4, we see the account of someone who had a mirror held up to them, and they chose to ignore it. So I'm going to read it to you. In Genesis, chapter 4, starting in verse 1, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. And his face was downcast. And then God holds up a mirror. And he says to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? 
But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So God held up this mirror to Cain. And he shows Cain what is out of place and what needs adjusting. And at that moment, Cain could have made a decision to allow his choices, decisions, and emotions to be adjusted by what he saw in the mirror. But he didn't. Like a man who looks in a mirror and walks away and forgets what he looks like, Cain chose to remain unchanged. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. It didn't have to be that way. See, Cain had every opportunity to make an adjustment, and so do we. When we read our Bible, we have another opportunity to look in the mirror, recognize what needs adjusting, and decide what we are or aren't going to do about it. Now, I understand that it's really simple for me to stand right up here and say, if you want to be changed, read your Bible and apply what you read. But what does that look like? And how do I go about it? And if the adjustment is huge, how do I make that big a change? Well, after you read your Bible, you can't just put it away and be satisfied that we've done it. So if we do these two things with the Bible, it'll begin to transform us. And the first thing is, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down, you can type it in. The first thing is dwell on it. Dwell on it. You know, when I went to school, the, my worst subject was math. I hated it with a passion. In fact, I still do. I hate it. And, but in third grade, we had to learn our multiplication tables. And I'm not sure how they do it now, but back then, when we had to learn our multiplication tables, it was by memorization. And what we did is we'd go home, and our homework would be whatever table we were working on that day, we would have to go through it and say it all the way from 1 to 12. 1 times 1 is 1. 1 times 2 is 2. 1 times 3 is 3. And I can remember sitting at the kitchen table and grumbling and complaining and saying, this is dumb. This is lame. I'm never going to do anything that needs math. I hate math. Why do I have to do this? And my parents, who had four kids, and I was the first, thought, man, this is not going to go well. So they did something that a lot of parents my age did. And some of you will recognize this when you put the picture up. They bought us this, this set of records. Do you guys remember that? And just in case you don't know, I actually thought I would play a clip for you. So those of you who have never heard this, or those of you who want to go down memory lane, this is what we listen to every night. Let's go. Two times one is two. Two times one is two. You remember? <laughs> two times two is four. We did this. Two times two is four. <laughs> okay. Two times three is six. Two times... <laughs> we had to do this all the time to learn our thing. I mean, for years. In fact, when I started thinking about this, I remembered the tune, I remembered the song. But I'll tell you what, I learned my multiplication tables... I learned them because it was memorized and it was something I had to go over, over and over and over. What, one of the things that those records helped me to do was to dwell on and consistently repeat the multiplication tables until I knew it by heart. Zig Ziglar once said, repetition is the mother of learning and the father of action, which makes it 
the architect of accomplishment. See, dwelling on something, rolling it over and over and over in your head helps you to remember it. That's how we're wired. It's a principle that we, we see applied over and over in the Bible. As Joshua stepped into the role of leading the Israelites, this is what God commanded him. Keep this book of the law on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be able, then you will be prosperous and successful. In the very first Psalm, King David writes this. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instructions and he meditates on it day and night. Meditate. You know the word that's translated meditate in these verses is the same root word as ruminate. And here's where it gets interesting. Ruminating is what a cow does. See, a cow will reach down into the ground, take a bite of grass, and chew on it. And then it'll chew on it for a while, and then it'll swallow it. It'll let it sit there for a little bit, and then it brings it back up, and it chews on it again. And it keeps chewing on it, and then it swallows it and lets it sit there, and it does it again. It's called ruminating. And it does it again and again and again until it can get the nutrition that it needs from that grass. And that's the same idea behind God's instruction to meditate on his word. See, when God says to meditate on his word, he wants us to bring his scripture or instruction up in our minds. He wants us to ponder over it, to think on it, rest on it, and then start it over again until we're able to apply it. And when we meditate on God's word, we take that thought or verse and ponder it and asking ourselves, and you might want to write this down, what does this mean to me? How does it apply? What am I supposed to do with it? How does it affect or change what I say, do, or decide? And as we go over those questions over and over about the scripture, and as we work it over and over in our minds until it becomes natural and travels down into our hearts and becomes a part of who we are. And then once it moves into our hearts, it becomes something we do without thinking. And we do a lot of things like that, really. We do a lot of things without thinking. It's actually something you do all the time. Have you ever gone driving and you're going home and all of a sudden you're like, how did I get here? I mean, I'm supposed to be here. But I don't remember getting here. Your brain was auto operating an automatic pilot. It's something that always does, and it goes into automatic mode. And there's a word for that. It's automacity. Automacity is the ability to do things without occupying the mind with low-level details required, allowing it to become an automatic responsive pattern or habit. It is usually the result of learning, repetition, and practice. See, we drive home so often that our bodies and our brains go into automatic pilot. And that's the goal of meditating on the Word of God. We want to know it so well and have it so ingrained in us that we automatically do the things of God. See, we, the sons and daughters of God, look the most like God 
when we do the things of God without forcing ourselves to do it. In my utmost for his highest, I found this nugget. We are not meant to be seen as God's perfect, bright, shining examples, but to be seen as the everyday essence of ordinary life, exhibiting the miracle of his grace. When we live our lives in our very ordinary, everyday ways, we exhibit the miracle of God's grace. In other words, I shouldn't have to make myself treat someone kindly. That should be so ingrained in me because the word of God says to treat others kindly, forgiving them as in Christ forgave you. I don't have to make myself be honest or not lie because the word of God says, don't, thou shalt not lie. And that should be so ingrained in me, I don't even think about it. I just can't do it. The ways of God and the things of God should be a part of who we are. And when his words are part of our hearts, his ways become second nature. You know, while we were in Denver, we went to um, this restaurant, Tamale Kitchen, and someone had said, you've got to go there and you've got to check this out. They've got great tamales. So we went, and when we ordered, I had said, I'll have a chileriado and I'll have a tamale plate. So she says, okay. And then she looks at me and she says, do you want that crunchy or soft? And I'm like, crunchy or soft? And I'm thinking, is there a taco on this plate? Because the only time I'm asked that here in Hawaii is when I order a taco. And so I looked at her, and I'm trying to figure it out. And finally, I said, so it's crispy. And then she looked at me like I came from another planet. I promise you. She looks at me, and she goes, well, you know, like when you take a food, and you deep fry it, and it comes out crunchy. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 wait, no. I know what crispy is. I meant on my plate. <laughs> What's crispy on my plate? And she goes, chileriano. So obviously, a crispy chileriano is a thing in the mainland but it isn't here, or I've never experienced it. So when she's telling me crispy or soft, I had no idea what she's talking about. And when I looked at her, like a deer in the headlights, and said, what's crispy? She had no idea what I was talking about. We had two different cultures. And because we were communicating from our culture, we didn't connect. We communicated using what is second nature to us based on where we live and we had a problem. And just as that server and I misunderstood each other because of our different cultures, there is often a disconnect between what we know and experience here on earth and what we know that God wants us to do based on his word. See, God's ways and his nature are not normal to the world that we're living in. They're not supposed to be. This world is not our home. And there are going to be times and situations where the ways of God and what we experience in this world are not going to function well together. And when that happens, when they crash in on each other, we will either align ourselves to the word of God or to the things of this world. It's our choice. It's our decision. But I'm going to try to make it a little simpler for you. We don't belong here. We are citizens of a different kingdom. Our citizenship and our culture is in heaven. The Apostle Paul said this, We are citizens of heaven and are eagerly waiting for our Savior to come from there, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
See, we will represent our heavenly kingdom as we learn to consistently dwell on the word of God. And when we dwell on the things of God, we will begin to do by second nature the things of God. Now on Sundays, we've been learning about the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are less a list of to-dos and don'ts as much as they are instructions on how we can become who God designed us to be as his sons and daughters. See, we don't follow the commandments to earn his love. We follow them because we trust God and we want to live in alignment with his wisdom. And in the very same way, dwelling on God's words so that they become ingrained in our lives or so that we can look like him. We don't do it to get favor or blessing. We want to look like God. And his words provide us a strategy. It provides a guide or a map to the qualities that we want to aim for so that we can become more and more like God. See, dwelling on God's word is not about the right things or hitting the mark. It's about who we're becoming. It's allowing the word of God to go deep in us and begin to shape us, which is the second thing we can do to be transformed by God's word. Be shaped by it. Allow the word of God to shape you. See, dwelling on God's word helps shape and provides us a guide to who we're becoming because God is much more invested in who we become than on whether we do the right things. There's a purpose and a plan to the word of God. And as we dwell on God's word, it moves down into our hearts, becomes a part of who we are, and begins to shape our thoughts, our words, and our actions. In his book, Winning the War in Your Mind, Craig Rochelle says, Our lives are always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. What we think shapes who we are. What we think shapes who we become. So are we thinking on and dwelling on the word of God so that we can become more and more like him? I think that's why the Apostle Paul coached the church in Philippi to dwell on the things of God. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. See, in this instructions, we see Paul move from thought, dwell on these things, then he moves to action, do what you've learned, and then he moves to experience. The God of peace will be with you. He then continues in his book by informing us that in recent years, an entire discipline of modern psychology has developed called cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, according to this branch of medicine, many of the problems we face, such as depression, addiction, eating disorders, are rooted in faulty and negative patterns of thinking. And there can be a flip side to this. See, imagine, if our lives can be negatively impacted by our thoughts, then how much more powerful, positive, and hopeful can they be when we focus on the promises of God? What if we let his instruction and promises shape our responses and our moods? Instead of focusing on the negative things in our lives 
and allowing them to shape our outlook and actions, what would our lives look like if we hold fast to the truths we find in God's word and meditate on them? See, we can find the perfect example in this type of thinking in the Old Testament account of the life of Joseph. And you can find the entire very interesting and very soap opera type story in the book of Genesis beginning in chapter 37 and it goes all the way through chapter 50. So I'm going to give it to you in a nutshell. Jacob, Joseph's father, had 12 sons. He had two wives, two concubines. And his favorite son was the 11th son, Joseph, because his favorite wife gave birth to him after years and years and years of being infertile. And the thing that was a problem was that Jacob's favoritism was very obvious. And it caused a rift between Joseph and his brothers. And so when he was 17, Joseph has a dream. And in his dream, his brothers and his fathers and everybody bowed down to um, serve him. And like a 17-year-old, he stupidly, yes, I did say stupidly, went to his brothers and told them, hey, I had this dream. You're all going to bow down to me. But that didn't go well. That drove the wedge further between him and his brothers. And one day an opportunity arose for his brothers to be done with Joseph. And so they sold their brother into slavery. Thinking that they were done with him, they went home, lied to their father, and made him believe that an animal had eaten Joseph and killed him. They thought they were done. Well, years later, Joseph is in, in, um, he's, he sold as a slave. He's living in Potiphar's house. But he doesn't let anger or bitterness or resentment change him or shape him. And he rises to the top. But because of a false accusation, he ends up in prison. And again, he doesn't allow anger or bitterness or resentment or even thoughts of revenge shape him. And he rises to the top. Well, eventually, Joseph becomes the second command in all of Egypt. And a famine happens in the land. And all the people have to come to Egypt to get food. And Joseph is the second in command in Egypt. And his brothers, the very ones who sold him into slavery, have to come to him to get food. Well, eventually, Joseph is reunited with his father. His family comes to live in Egypt. He gets reunited with his younger brother, who he hasn't seen. And that dream that Joseph had about ruling over his brothers, they lived it. See, God's promise came true. And through all of these things that Joseph went through, he never allowed anger to shape him. He never gave in to bitterness. He never thought about revenge. He hung to what he knew of God, and it shaped what he did. And he always rose to the top. The interesting thing in all of this is that Joseph, when he was in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife wanted to have an affair with him. And his response was, how could I do this and sin against God? See, Joseph wasn't shaped by bitterness. He was shaped by who God is. And years later, after all is said and done, his brothers are worried that Joseph is going to take revenge on them because their father has passed away. And even then, Joseph comforts his brother 
by saying, you planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. See, after all they had done to him, after all of those lost years with his father, how could he say that to them? And then if we're honest with ourselves, if someone had betrayed us that cold-heartedly, would we be able to say that to them? Joseph could only do that because the ways of God were so ingrained in him that they were a part of his life. And we have the very same opportunity that Joseph had. We can make God's word so ingrained in our lives that it shapes our outlooks and our responses. But for that to happen, God's word first needs to shape who we're becoming. In one of the Psalms that he wrote, King David describes two types of people. One group are those who know the things that God can do. They know his miracles. They've experienced his intervention, and they know he's real. But that's as far as it goes. The second have an intimate relationship with God. They don't just know what he can do, They know his heart, they know his ways, and they know his character. He wrote, He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. See, the Israelites knew the power of God. They even experienced it, but they did not yield their hearts to God, and they weren't changed by him. They allowed their relationship to be about what God could do for them and what he promised them but not about knowing him. Moses, on the other hand, obeyed God, even when times were difficult. He knew God well enough to plead for God to teach him his ways. He wanted an intimate relationship with God. And he said to God, if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. So what do you want to be? What do you want your relationship with God to look like? How do you want to respond to the everyday life that comes your way? This week in staff meeting, Pastor Sheldon introduced a new song to us. It's titled, Make Room. It's a song that speaks of surrendering to God and making room for him to do whatever he wants to do in our hearts and lives. And one of the verses says this, Shake up the ground of all my tradition. Break down the walls of all my religion. Your way is better. Your way is better. And then we talked about it a bit. There are powerful words. We talked about it and what it means to us, and then Pastor Sheldon said this. But can I truly say, shake the ground? Or does it just feel good to sing? See, that's a very good question. And it's not just applicable to that song. It's applicable to the word of God that we read every day. It's applicable to scripture. Does it simply feel good to say, whoa, that was a tough devotion. Man, that was good. Or do I want God to change me? Will I let it shape me? Will I let his word turn me around and move me in the direction that he wants to move me into the woman or the man that he's calling us to be. See, are we allowing God's word to be a mirror that reflects back to us some areas of life that need adjusting? 
to realign us back to the heart of God? Let me encourage you to apply this scripture to your life every single day. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the room, when you lie down and when you get up. Let this be how we live our life. Talk about the things of God. Dwell on them. Share them. Think about them. Ponder them over and over in our minds until it becomes a part of who we are. Dwell on the word of God so much that it becomes autopilot for us. Now, before I end, I want to repeat some questions for you. They're actually going to be our reflection questions. And I want you to think about it or discuss it with your family and friends. And the questions are, who do you want to be? What do you want your relationship with God to look like? And how do you want to respond to the everyday life that comes your way? Now, if you attended church online this Sunday, you would have heard Pastor Kat talk about a recent contestant on America's Got Talent. She goes by the name of Nightbird. And if you haven't already seen the video, please watch it. And our host should be putting that link up. And the reason I say that is because there is something about watching her. It's the positive attitude that she had, the, the joy that she emitted. And as Pastor Kat said, she's battling cancer. But her attitude and her smile and her personality, they were so vibrant that I was intrigued. And I googled her and I found her blog. And as I read it, I realized that what made her stand out, that what made her who she was, is her relationship with God. In an interview with Liberty Journal, she said, I believe that God can heal in one instant. I also believe that no good thing does he withhold. So there is something God was growing in the field that is me. And if God had pulled up all those hardships too soon, it would have also pulled up all these miracles he did in my spirit. And as I read, I said to myself, man, that's how I want to be. I want to love God so much and have his word so ingrained in my heart that I don't even see the negative, that I'm focused solely on what God is doing. And then, because I'm so focused on what God is doing, that people see me and they're intrigued. And they ask questions. And they get to know me. So I actually printed up her blog, and I want to close by reading it to you. Because I want you to hear the words of what I call a modern-day Joseph. She's someone who's able to look past her circumstances and look past the negative and instead align herself and trust the ways of God. So she calls it, God is on the bathroom floor. And she writes, I don't remember most of autumn because I lost my mind late in the summer and for a long time after that, I wasn't in my body. I was a light bulb buzzing somewhere far. After the doctor told me I was dying, and after the man I married said he didn't love me anymore, I chased a miracle in California, and 16 weeks later, I got it. The cancer was gone. But when my brain caught up with it all, something broke. I later found out that all the tragedy at once had caused a physical head trauma, and my brain was sending false signals of excruciating pain and panic. I spent three months propped against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. 
I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide, where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. I have had cancer three times now, and I've barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet with God, that he will say I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. Maybe he'll say I just never learned this lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this. He can never say that he did not know me. I am God's downstairs neighbor. Banging on the ceiling with a broomstick, I show up at his door every day. Sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to me himself. I've called him a cheat and a liar, and I meant it. I have told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. Tears have been the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat, repeat, night and day, sunrise, sunset. Call me bitter if you want. That's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God. For I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout. I'm sad too. If an explanation would help, he would write me one. I know it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us, and I don't want to argue with God. I want to lay in a hammock with him and trace the veins in his arms. I remind myself that I'm praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander. Answering their prayers, they didn't pray. For 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. Fire lit their path each night. And every morning, he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for the answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. I look for the mercy bread that he promised to bake fresh for me each morning. The Israelites called it manna, which means, what is it? That's the same question I'm asking again and again. There's mercy here somewhere, but what is it? What is it? What is it? I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees, in my mother's crooked hands, in the blanket my friend left for me, in the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not mercy that I asked for. It's not the mercy I asked for, but it is mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. It's a prayer. I don't mean, but I will repeat it until I do. Call me cursed. Call me lost. Call me scorned. But that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who whispers, call me the one God whispers a secret to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. And even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy, and I can't really explain it, but God is in there, even now. I have heard it said that some people can see God because they can't see God because they won't look low enough, and it's true. Look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. See, the woman who wrote that is so close with God that when she stood on the stage and very nonchalantly said, I have cancer, and sang a song that said, it's okay, it's okay. People were so intrigued that they looked her up. 
The next day, her song was number one on the iTunes charts. And I want to be that person. I want to be the person who so naturally just lives the things of God that when people see me, it intrigues them. And it makes them curious. And it makes them search. And in that search, they encounter God. And that's my prayer for all of us. That we will be the person who's work, who has God's word so deep within our hearts that when people see us, they see God. Would you bow, bow your heads wherever you are? And I'm going to close in prayer. Abba Father, thank you so much. Thank you for the word that you give us. Thank you for allowing us to know you, to hear you, to become more like you. And mostly, thank you that you don't leave us where we are. You don't leave us unchanged, but you give us opportunity day in and day out to become more and more like you. So Lord, may we receive that. May we become like you. May we hear you and search only for you. We pray this all in the precious name of your son, Jesus.